This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. I don't know that we're satisfied um, with the number of faculty that we're reaching. I mean, we always want to be able to reach more. Um, and, you know, you know, there are some programs that we offer where we have, you know, 30 faculty register, you know, and 12 show up. I often, and maybe it's reflective, obviously, of my maybe self-doubt. I always, I can't help but wonder when I walk around sometimes, I think, oh my gosh, we're, we, in Office of Faculty Development anyway, we're walking around with this delicious tray of desserts. And they, yeah. and they, the faculty, are looking at me like, are you crazy? I don't even have meat and potatoes, barely water, and you're walking around with this dessert tray, and we're struggling to put the bare necessities on the table. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Troy Buer from the University of Virginia. Hey, Troy, why don't you tell everybody all your titles down there in Virginia? Hey, Kim, thanks for having me. Um, my title, I am the Director of Faculty Development and Special Projects and an Assistant Professor of Medical Education. And how long have you been uh, the Director of Faculty Development, Troy? I've been the Director of Faculty Development about five years or so. I've been in the medical school um, I'm 10 years, so I've had a variety of roles and moved over to medical education about or faculty development from medical education about five years ago. And how did that transition happen? Well, I had um, come to the School of Medicine actually as a doctoral student. I was um, working on a PhD out of our education school, and as part of the program, we would do uh, internships around the university. Um, graduate assistantships. And so one year I actually was in the nursing school. Uh, the next year I ended up over in the medical school and uh, had never, I guess I didn't know anything really about academic medicine um, and ended up in the medical school uh, working on some really interesting projects, one of which was um, our curricular change where um, the, the, the school was moving from you know, the discipline-based um, curriculum, traditional model to this organ system-based integrated curriculum. And so um, I was involved in as sort of as, as a staff support uh, early on with that. And then one thing led to another, uh, finished my PhD, um, was invited to uh, serve in a full-time role um, within educational programs involving uh, medical education um, in particular, and did that, um, and then um, had an opportunity to transition with interest in leadership and education to transition over to faculty development. So those educational programs, when you first um, went full-time, were they for the students, medical students or graduate students, or were those also for faculty? They actually were for um, our administrators, believe it or not. We had a uh, administrator development, so these would be the um, chief business officers. I was working for the COO of the school at the time, um, and actually it was a split role. So partly with the CEO, the COO of the uh, medical school, and then the senior dean for education. So I was helping with the medical education curricular change, um, 
for part of the job and the other side doing educational development, training, skill development for the uh, administrators at the department level. Now, that's really interesting to me, doing the administrative development. We were recently talking in a meeting here at Hopkins about professionalism and leadership development. And at Hopkins, we have about 30 formalized leadership programs throughout the institution, and that is Mm -hmm. for faculty and staff and hospital employees. And so, you know, the idea of leadership, of course, we know runs across the spectrum, but we were just recently talking about the import, the importance of um, having programming or developing leadership programs for all those teams together and, and, and thinking about, you know, we, it's important to have things for our faculty as standalones or alone by themselves. But when you think about the way medicine is now in, in teams, to have, it just doesn't make sense in a lot of ways to have leadership programs for faculty, leadership programs for nurses, leadership programs for staff, for, you know, um, and hospital administrators. So I, I like that um, you had that administrative program. I assume that was only for administrators? It was, um, actually, but I, I agree with you know this idea you're 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 talking about this need to uh, what I think if you're developing a leadership culture um, at an institution, you know are you expecting faculty faculty to lead differently than um, the staff versus the administrators, the department chairs? So is there a common approach, an expectation, regardless of the role you have of what we would expect uh, out of our leaders? And so I think this idea of um, getting faculty and staff and uh, others together to talk about leadership and to develop those skills um, is, I think, really helps actually set a nice culture yeah. for an organization. And, and yet it's such a challenge because two bits of pushback that I was kind of end up being the, I was the cranky person in the meeting. Uh, I was saying, well, we have limited resources as it is. And at Hopkins, we have over 3,000 full-time faculty members and it's it's always this this tug at our own personal heartstrings because we all love leadership and development when we have all these great programs for our faculty. And then, of course, as you know, what happens is when you deliver some product or program to a group of faculty, inevitably the word spreads. And then you have undergraduate students, graduate students, residents, fellows, postdocs, clinical associates, administrators, staff saying, hey, we heard about this program. Can you also offer it for us? And as much as we'd like to, you know, we're thinking, and at least in our case, we're faculty development. And then we risk this dilution, um, especially with minimal resources. When you've got, you know, a full-time person, me, the idea of delivering programming across the population of an institution, it's, it's overwhelming. You see the, the importance of it, but it's almost like how in the world can we ex- be expected to deliver that to everybody? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great challenges is scaling up um, when your, you know, your job, your, the mission of the faculty development office is faculty. Right. Um, but you see this, this broader need. And so, you know, we when I was in that the, the previous role, working specifically with uh, administrators um, and organizational learning and development, I had some nice partnership and collaboration with 
um, colleagues in the hospital, over in the medical center, colleagues that work, were working in the physicians group. Um, so we could have some collaboration. It wasn't, you know, going to go whole scale across the entire health system, but there were pockets and opportunities to have some programming that crossed, um, that, you know, addressed faculty and uh, staff uh, together. But, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, <laughs> you know, the resource constraint uh, scaling up outside the scope of the mission of the office is a is a challenge. Yeah. And, and the, the other thing we've noticed uh, a couple years ago in our women's leadership program, we have an office of women in science and medicine. Our, our senior associate dean for women, uh, Dr. Barbara Fibush, she, for I think it was a year or two, invited, well, they, they were like MD-PhD students. That was it. They were MD-PhD students, women, to join in um, the women's emerging women's leadership program. So we have about every year about 40 junior women in this program. And uh, one or two years there, she opened that opportunity up to, I think, 10 or so, maybe six or eight slots to these trainees, the MD-PhD students. And, and interestingly, she we discussed this, and she decided to stop doing that because it ended up setting up this kind of a slightly odd environment or vibe in the room that the students would sit together, understandably, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. despite our trying to, you know, split everybody up and really try to socialize and, in a, and really mix it up. But there almost ended up being this kind of, a, I don't know, a little bit of a, a boundary there that set, that made us a little bit nervous that the, the women faculty weren't feeling quite as free to share certain experiences. And then similarly, the students kind of ended up taking a back seat and, and were deferring to the faculty during mm-hmm. breakouts and, you know, one-on-ones and those things. So we were kind of curious about the dynamics that were happening in a classroom where you mixed people up who are not same. And I think it, it always reminds me of this. I had a conversation with someone who were, we were doing offering yoga for in Joy in Medicine initiative a couple of years ago. And the one faculty woman said, yeah, I know they're offering yoga over there, but the last thing I want to do is lie around in my sweatpants next to the staff in my office or the staff in my clinic. It just doesn't seem comfortable to me that, you know, I'm, I'm laying there all sweaty in my in my workout clothes. And I thought, well, yeah. I'm a gym rat. It doesn't bother me. But there is that kind of a, a perception, I think, that some people may be reticent to share and divulge fears or anxieties or concerns as leaders when you're in rooms with people that you may be supervising. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the programs that um, we recently started that, that speaks to this is we, we get our department chairs, all of them together quarterly uh, for a leadership series. Um, and one thing that's, that's happened that I, I think has been so interesting is it almost has become a safe space for the department chairs um, where they're together, you know, the, administ- the department administrators aren't in the room, it's just the chairs, um, where they can sort of let their guard down and talk about issues they're struggling with and wrestling with, um, with peers, you know, who are in similar, uh, similar position, just in a different right. department. Um, and, and I didn't expect that, actually. Um, I thought it would be a great opportunity to get the chairs together and we can explore some leadership topics, um, but this this dynamic of 
sharing, you know, I'm really wrestling with this particular issue. How are you all handling that? Um, has been a really nice, un, I guess, unexpected outcome. I totally agree with you, Troy. That's one we come back to over and over and over again, as you, I'm sure you do when we ask for evaluations. The number one or very prominent feature that our participants always note is the networking, the socializing, the, the developing friendships and collaborations, and minimally just saying, hey, there's somebody else like me. I thought I was the, you know, the strange one. The, mm-hmm. I'm the only one having imposter syndrome, but lo and behold, there are other people who have the same challenges. So I love that you too have noticed that letting their guard down. That That's something that I think is so wonderful that happens in a group. And that's why I, I you know, we have to figure out how to balance that safe space um, component with diversity and hearing different voices. So, you know, I've, we, mm-hmm. we talked about like, do we have like a core curriculum where everybody's together and then you have a electives or breakouts where the same thing when our women's program, we have a co-ed leadership program, the women's programs, and that women's program seems a lot closer because they just, they, there's a different bonding um, mm-hmm. vibe in that room compared to the co-ed room. So it, mm-hmm. is, it is something that we, we struggle with as well. It's just fascinating. But I, I agree with you. I love that when you could sit there and watch people letting their guard down and being honest and sharing their fears and, and that, that transparency is just really a unique mm-hmm. situation opportunity in our daily lives. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I totally shanghaied the beginning of this talk. So why don't you describe <laughs> what your office looks like? People are always curious. How many people work in your office and what percent effort and trying to compare yours to my office? So can you, if, if you can, just briefly describe about how many people you have running around in your space doing what? Yes. So we have a senior associate dean for faculty affairs and faculty development, um, Susan Pollard, who oversees faculty affairs on the one side and faculty development on the other. And within the faculty development realm where I work, um, I'm full-time in this role as the director. Uh, We have a full-time manager who really handles the day-to-day logistics, the operations of of running um, our events and and programs. And she has uh, one full-time person working for her and one part-time um, assistant working for her. So I guess within the office, that's three and a half um, FTE. And then the faculty affairs component, um, there's a, a uh, administrator, and that's really focused on primarily on the promotion and tenure process. And so the administrator, again, handles the nuts and bolts of of getting through, helping faculty get through the, the uh, advancement process. And then there's a faculty coordinator for who oversees the, f- the faculty side of the academic advancement. But so that, that's a smaller, smaller office than the faculty development piece. So why don't you tell us what are you doing in faculty development programming that's or anything that's unique or different or anything you've been excited about and anything new or innovative? What can you uh, share with us to inspire, encourage us or inform us? You know, one thing I, I hadn't, as I was thinking about this uh, conversation with you, one thing I hadn't I noticed was this trend, I guess, um, where some of the programming I'm most excited about is sort of dealing with transitions, whether it's a leadership transition or a transition into a faculty role for our new faculty um, 
or transitions for junior faculty. Um, and so I, I'm excited about this junior faculty development program that we've started with um, great uh, input and some mentoring from colleagues at um, Penn State and UMass and Albany Medical uh, College, uh, this JFDP model. So I don't know, Luann Thorndike and Mary Ellen Gussick, yeah, Rob Milner and others. This is a model that they've used uh Penn State and UMass. Um, and so we adapted that model uh, for our junior faculty. And that's this is our third cohort this year. And that that has been a really, really, really well-received program. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the model. Do you want me to talk about that yeah, at all? Go ahead. Review it for everybody. I'm sure there's some people who have not heard about it. Um, so really the core elements of it, there's a core curriculum part of it where um, we're meeting at least uh, here at UVA, we meet every other week um, for two hours um, from October through April, and we have about 15 to 20 junior faculty, so all assistant professors that participate. And so, you know, a variety of topics that we'll explore during those face-to-face -face sessions uh, around promotion and tenure, mentoring, um, research in academic medicine, education, those types of topics, uh, a little bit of leadership uh, as well. And then there's this mentoring component. So you've got the curricular component and then the, the, this mentoring component where they're connected with a um, senior faculty mentor and they're going to work on a project over the course of the program. And then at the end, you know, after the 10 months or so that we're together, they'll do a presentation um, about uh, their project. And so this combination of mentoring plus the face-to-face -face, uh, curriculum um, has been um, it's been great to see the the faculty, these junior faculty, really uh, take off, and it sort of sets them up to, you know, launch forward at at the end of the program um, with with some scholarship as they start down the promotion and tenure route. Um, so so yeah, so that transition into a junior faculty role um, that that's been a nice program for us. Uh, another program I mentioned earlier was with our department chairs yeah. and thinking about new department chairs coming on. Um, so, I don't know, within the last two years or so, we, we had um, six new department chairs start about the same time. Oh and, so, and so we were looking, you know, at their arrival thinking, you know, how can we help them transition and um, get off to a great start in leading their departments. And so we um, developed uh, a little bit of an onboarding curriculum for new department chairs. And the nice thing was with having, you know, six, about six new uh, department chairs starting at the same time was we could do some of this together as a cohort um, where they could get some peer mentoring uh, from each other. Um, and so that, that's been a nice program where we've been able to work with them individually in their transition. So connecting them with um, my my boss, uh, Dr. Pollard, as the senior dean, so she meets with them um, over the first every other week over the first three months, one-on-one mm -hmm. um, -on -one with them, connecting them with the chief operating officer and the senior dean for education and research, um, and really having some personalized contact during that critical first 90 days um, on the job. Um, so that that's been a a, a good 
a, a nice program as well. Now, you know, not every time you're going to have five or six or seven new department chairs starting at the same time, right? Um, and so, been able to adapt that as one new department chair, you know, starts, um, be able to adapt it to their specific needs and help them uh, transition. So, thinking about, you know, how do we um, support leaders as they take on these new roles? Some may be internal, moving into a leadership role. Uh, some may be coming uh, externally, starting a, a, a leadership role. So, that's something that we've been thinking about um, quite a bit. I'm not sure what experience uh, you've had with that or if your office works with uh, leaders during those transitions um, as well. Yeah, and... That's, we did start that about, let's see, I've been at Hopkins almost six years, and I think about five years ago, our vice dean for faculty, Dr. Janice Clements, and her right-hand person, our senior associate dean is uh, Dr. Cindy Rand, they also came up with a an onboarding process that not only involved, you know, the equivalent of a you know three-inch stack of paper documents, if you were to print right. all the documents, but yeah. a series as something like you've mentioned with Dr. Pollard, meetings and facilitated meetings with other uh, finance folks and promotion and tenure folks and peer mentors, peer, peer mm-hmm. directors, so mm-hmm. a similar process. And like you, I'm trying to think, we haven't had like a, a chunk of turnover that we've had small groups but we we typically have one or two a year and i'd say gosh maybe we're 50 50 in terms of internal external yeah i think so and then also Mm -hmm. we have i don't know about uva but i'd say the past five years also of our 33 or so departments in the school of medicine many of them now i'd say have created positions vice chairs, if you will, of faculty development or faculty affairs or some mm-hmm. kind of comparable position. So we we also try to work with that. We hand in glove with those levels of leaders at the departmental level to um, to work with new directors and in, in, in faculty development and helping them on that end of, end of things. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In a, in, a, in a prior life, I actually had worked in student affairs. Um, and one of the responsibilities I had at this small liberal arts college was new student orientation. Um, and the principles, I think, translate really well as you're thinking about new faculty, for instance, coming on or new leaders. It's almost um, with new student orientation, we, we really tried to celebrate their decision to attend our university. I was like a re-recruiting as they're transitioning in. Um, But there's this this sort of um, nuts and bolts requirements of getting started as a new student, the paperwork and the financial aid and the housing, you know, so all all of these sorts of things. But also this acculturation, like welcoming them into the community. Um, And how can you do that? And then you translate that, like, what does that mean for new faculty coming into a medical school? You know, how do you help them have as painless an experience as they navigate some of the compliance uh, requirements around credentialing and privileging and required training as a new employee um, to getting set up with 
you know, their computer and ID badge and access to facilities and email, you know, the, all, all of that stuff with, with the connections, like connecting with a mentor, um, developing sort of this network of support within their um, division or department. Um, and I think oftentimes these, I, I don't know that necessarily in academic medicine, we do a great job um, of helping new faculty navigate um, an institution as a, as a new employee. So I think that's one thing that we've tried to, to work on uh, to make it a better experience with the nuts and bolts of getting started and um, setting them up with um, a welcoming, mentoring, coaching, you know, network development experience as well. I love that you're thinking about that. And it, it, the, the other thing that popped in my head when you were talking about all of the wide range from everything, getting the key and where do you park to the, you know, how do I get promoted? How I gonna, am I going to be successful here? Is Then you have the, you also have the folks at Hopkins who have been done their training with us. So it's almost kind of like a, a real week, but um, bump, you know, not much celebration because they've already been doing their training mm-hmm. at Hopkins. And then they just kind of slide into this faculty right. role. So they almost yeah. feel like, well, I'm, I'm treated like a, a fellow or a resident or a trainee because I've been here already. And so it's kind of like anticlimactic or people assume that they know yeah. what has to happen as a faculty member because they've been there X number of years. So there's also that, that kind of strange group of, they almost mm-hmm. in, a, in a strange way feel we're going to an orientation because they've been there. So certain things yep. they don't need to know, but they have to, uh, we try to encourage them. You have to change your, your frame, your lens. Now you're not a trainee. You're not a student. Now you are a faculty member. You do have power. You have responsibilities that are a little bit different. So I love that you're thinking about that too. And we talk about that every, we only have one orientation for the school of medicine in the fall in early October. And mm-hmm. some of our departments do their own departmental orientations. So I, I share your, you know, a little bit of frustration or worry that we're not doing it well because it, it's kind of, people don't obviously like, unlike students who maybe will start a school year in September or an undergrad. And so August, there's a big, a big celebration. Obviously, our faculty start whenever. And so for some people, our new faculty orientation on October 8th, they've been here six or seven months. Some have been here you know, right. a minute and some yeah. have already gone through their departmental orientation. Some are already seeing patients. So we, too, struggle with, the, how do we get all the nuts and bolts, all the regulatory compliance things and integrity and um, ethics and those kinds of things um covered and then how do we also make them as you said feel welcome and celebrate their decision and and reassure them and and help them know that you may not remember all this stuff but know that there are people here to care care about you and so it is i i do agree that we don't do that well and i would love to see how other people do it i, I went to a church leadership training last summer and it was a two-day thing and at the end of the second day there was like this gauntlet of people who were all the volunteers and i'm talking like 100 volunteers who just were mm-hmm. lined both sides of the 
exit from the church building. It was a mega church building. And there were balloons and confetti and clapping <laughs> and music. And I, and I, as I'm walking out of the place, I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? I felt like I was walking into a big arena for a football game or something. It right. was just off the charts craziness. But I'll tell you, as I was walking down that hallway <laughs> to leave, I couldn't help but smile and I thought, wow, isn't this an interesting concept? I just finished a two-day thing, and look at all these people. They're celebrating it. And I thought, how come we don't do that at Hopkins? And then, of course, when I suggested it at the next meeting, I'm like, we need balloons and confetti. We need, we need some beans. At the end of the hallway, cheering, and everybody kind of looked at me like, oh, here she goes. But I, I share that concern of balancing what we need to do, but also celebrating and making a culture that is welcoming and um a happy and joyful place. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, several years ago, I was involved with a project where, you know, we sat down um, to tackle, begin tackling this issue. And, you know, so we had on this, this group that was tackling, how, how do we make this a, a, a better experience? You know, so folks from the clinical staff office, from our physicians group, from the medical center, HR from each of those places, plus within the School of, of Medicine. Um, and we used lean uh, process improvement. Um, and really, it's one of the um, my favorite projects that I've worked on um, because you had all of these people coming together from across the system, um, focused on making this transition um, a little less painful, a little more enjoyable, and having this sort of celebration that you're here. Um, here's your, you know, connecting you with your mentor and, and others. Um, and so we did make some headway. Uh, and then within the last few years, the university has completely transformed the way that um, the structure and process of, of uh, human resources, um, which sort of upended what that project was. But I, I think it's, um, they're going to tackle that now going forward under this new umbrella. But I, I do think it's possible. Uh, we, you just getting the players that each have a piece in getting someone up and running as a, a new faculty member. So whether it's credentialing and privileging, um, HR requirements, whatever they are, getting them at the table um, to have that conversation. What kind of experience do we want them to have um, and what are the pain points in that process? And what can we do to begin eliminating some of those and partnering better together? So I was curious when you mentioned the, your back to your departmental new, new chairs and the leadership and the orientation and the, mm -hmm. the quarterly programs that you have with them, where they let their guard down and they, they talk frankly with each other. What is because I don't really interact in my position as the uh, associate dean for faculty development. I don't really interact closely with our directors. We call them directors, not chairs at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. I only see them at a monthly advisory board meeting. But I'm curious: do you hear conversations, or do they do they talk about faculty development? Do they do they understand faculty development the way we do? in the group on faculty affairs world and the people like us who've been doing this and thinking about it a lot and breathing it and living it and studying it and writing on it, do they get it? Well, I think, um, like most things, um, the answer could be, it depends, <laughs> you know, it depends on the chair. Um, I think by and large, and a credit to Dr. Pollard, uh, and her predecessor, Dr. Sharon Hostler, 
um, who have been so proactive in championing faculty development and faculty affairs and have provided um, great programming um, and have been a great resource to the department chairs um, that my sense is, and you know what I've seen in these meetings is, is it they do value it, and they, and they see how it has helped um, their faculty. And this junior faculty development program that I mentioned previously, the participants have to be nominated and endorsed by their department chair. Um, and it's been fun to see the chairs engage with this and you know put their faculty up uh, as as someone who could participate and benefit from this junior faculty development program. Um, and so the other thing that, that we've seen is we partner with the AAMC on the standpoint survey um, and the faculty or the department chairs have been so engaged with that process. Um, so we had, you know, nearly an 80% response rate um, this time, which is phenomenal. Uh, and so they've been so engaged with it and have been really interested in the data for their specific departments, interested in the data um, for the institution as a whole, and and will be engaged in action planning. And so I, I do think um, over time, because of the good work that's been done by those that have come before, um, it's it's led to their engagement with faculty development in really positive ways. Yeah, kudos to Sue for, for um, building that culture. I I often, and maybe it's reflective, obviously, of my maybe self-doubt. I always, I can't help but wonder when I walk around sometimes, I think, oh my gosh, we're, we, in Office of Faculty Development anyway, we're walking around with this delicious tray of desserts. Right. Beautiful petty fours and mouth-watering cakes and pies and pastries and and we're walking around going, would you care for this? Would you care for a pastry? Care for a delight? Yeah. And they, yeah. and they, the faculty, are looking at me like, are you crazy? I don't even have meat and potatoes, barely water, and you're walking around with this dessert tray, and we're mm-hmm. struggling to put the bare necessities on the table. So I, mm-hmm. that that's that frenetic pace of seeing patients and generating RVUs and writing the next grant application and cranking out the papers and mentoring and being mentored and and regulatory compliance yeah. online mer- learning modules and charting an epic and i sometimes you know i feel like like i'm they must must think i'm nuts thinking yeah that stuff is lovely it's wonderful i'm sure it's delicious i'm sure it's great i'm sure i would enjoy it however uh, yeah. i haven't even you know had a sip of water in a week so i i i often worry about that and then it always makes me think what do those department directors think of of what we do and i'm and i'm so glad that you've built a culture and like you said it's it's true that there are some who's who get it and they they understand the value of helping develop faculty members and that it's not like in the good old days where you just come in at oh dark 30 and work right. and then go home at zero dark 30 and you're going to get promoted and get your grants and get your papers and see the patients and meet your thresholds. And it's not that easy anymore. So some of them get it. And yet some of them, I think, look at me like, Oh, isn't that cute? Aren't you? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's not, I don't know that we're satisfied um, with the number of faculty that we're reaching. I mean, we always want to be able to reach more. Um, and, you know, 
you know, there are some programs that we offer where we have, you know, 30 faculty sh- register, you know, and 12 show up, you know, but it, so it's, it's, it's the competing demands. And, no, um, Troy, you're exactly right. We, that our rule of thumb is we only purchase food or beverages or whatever the venue would require or the event would require for half, for half the people who RSVP. Because it's it's rare if we get more than half show, who will show up for the seminar, workshop, you know, whatever, classes, mm-hmm. whatever, brown bag. Because you're right, by the time that they do the calculation, let's see, it's going to take me 10 minutes to walk over there, X minutes to do this, X minutes to do that, eh, I'll get it, ne- I'll catch it next time around. Or they they yeah. taped it, it's recorded, It's I'll watch it some other time. And, yeah. and that's, you know, that's why I'm a big fan um, and I think why we've seen the most success with the longitudinal cohort-based programs, mm-hmm. um, that there's an obligation to um, peers that they're, you know, in the program with uh, and developing those relationships over time and that it is carved out into their schedule. Um, and that's a real challenge is, is helping faculty be feel like they can take the time um, to to participate in in faculty development that's going to set them up for uh, success uh, in their careers. So yeah, I think that's a a challenge that we all all wrestle with. Yeah. We went so far in our junior faculty leadership program that started in January because, like you, I noticed you know a lot of these patterns over the, over the years and in my six years here at Hopkins. Again, as I mentioned earlier, that people love the networking and and they don't want it to be a a party to the death by PowerPoint phenomenon. So, you know, we try to minimize PowerPoints. We do a lot of adult learning activities, mm-hmm. of course, like everybody, like we should. And yet I went so far as to um, build in a half an hour at the end of every session. So instead of going 9 a.m. to 12 every three weeks, now, I mean, it's still in their calendars. We make them commit when they apply to this program. That's 9 to 12 for eight you know, sessions. However, what they don't know until they show up is that the last we, we make sure all of the content is done at eleven thirty. And then that last half hour we we I've always I asked them for their favorite songs and their favorite some favorite photos. So our program coordinators put a montage of pictures, their favorite photos and, and has a a running tape of their favorite songs. And we just put the songs on, we roll the, the video of their photos and it's kind of this I hate to say party but it people stick around that last half hour and they talk and they meet and there's still food they're munching on and they really just kind of connect mm-hmm. versus it's time and they're running out the door and it defeats that purpose of bonding as a community or as a cohort so I totally agree with you with that protected time we start off every session saying this is thank you for taking time for yourself you know, minimize, don't look at the phone, don't look at your computer. This is your investment in you. And that half hour at the end, I thought, well, maybe the first time they'll humor me, they'll stick around, they don't make me feel bad. But geez, here we are, and after having four or five sessions, and it's the same thing. I mean, people are there 10 after 12, quarter after 12, they're just really um, enjoying that space. So that's what makes me a little bit squirrely when some people want a lot or want us to put things, everything like online or Mm -hmm. in a podcast or in a webinar or 
in some other kind of a, you know, online chat thing. It's that stuff is is nice and it's convenient, but you lose that that connection, that personal connection that I think is becoming so and so so much more rare even and more more valuable. Absolutely, yeah. Those those, those personal relationships and connections. So the, this leadership program um, that we do, we partner with the provost office. Um, and it's, it's sort of the premier leadership program at the university for faculty called leadership and academic matters. Um, and as we've done evaluations of that program, the, the most common, um, strength that's identified or the thing that's of the most value to the participants are those personal connections. Um, it's developing the relationships. So the content is good and they, they'll, they'll, you know, use those leadership principles, but it's really, um, developing connections with other faculty um, outside their own department or division that they they really value, um, and and so but of course that takes time, right. and you know so the the resource question always comes into play. But when you can make it happen and the faculty are able to have that protected time to do it, I it just pays. Um, great dividends. Isn't it? It's wonderful. And it, and yet what you just said made me think, you know, how do you, how do you measure that? So part of the thing that I'm sure you're going to address and anybody listening want to check out the, the workshop that uh, Troy is leading at this annual professional development conference oh. through the AAMC GFA in July in Chicago, Troy's abstract um, as a member of our research and project development subcommittee is on um, scholarship and how to you know boost your scholarship in this space, uh, that, that that question always comes back to me. Well, how in the world? I mean, back to like the, the string along with the, the department chairs of going. Yeah, it's nice that you guys do that. Good for you. Uh, good for you to be the, our cheerleaders. Is how do you demonstrate value? How do you document a return on investment when? You are believe in your heart that that networking and those personal connections and those building social relationships and and helping people connect. You know, how do you measure that? How do you tell people? How do you get that across? How how are you going to publish that? You know, good luck trying to publish that. Yeah, and they, and that's exactly what we're going to tackle in that workshop. So, um, I I think it's so important as as new faculty development programs are. Um, planned and developed is to be thinking about evaluation plan as part of the creation you know, on, on the front end um, because it, to be able to demonstrate the value of what we're providing to faculty um, it's possible and I, I think it's a, an obligation for anyone that's involved in faculty affairs and development um, is to um, have scholarship that's done in a way that that really measures the value uh, value added, and so I'm really excited about working with the subcommittee on developing this session and this this workshop. It's going to be great, and and, and it is it's so important because so so many of us, as we all know, come to faculty affairs and faculty development, you know, kind of backwards or sideways. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know of anybody who in their graduate training took anything that was close to developing faculty in schools of medicine. So, you know, it's hard. It's, it's been a challenge, I think, for me, figuring out how to, how to do this and do it scientifically like we all learn in our dissertations and in our, you know, medical training. It, it's, it's a different kind of a thing. 
Yeah, you, you, you know it's important. It's almost like faith. You know it, you feel it, and it's, you know, you, you've got to try to, how do you convince other people that it, it works and it makes sense and it matters? And how does it, like Sue Pollard has done, changing the culture? How does that, you know, how you just keep steadfast at it and make sure it becomes institutionalized and that people recognize, you know, we are an institution. We are a culture that embraces leadership development, that we yeah, care about and- Right. And here's the evidence to show that that's the case. Yeah. Right. As, as, as uh, scholarship is an important part of faculty um, development work. So I, I, I think that um, those that, that are able to do it well um, have greater success in that, you know, they're able to demonstrate to um, school leadership, um, to faculty um, that the value of you participating in this is X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I've done too much talking. What else do you want to talk about, Troy? Anything else you wanted to share so that was uh, you're excited to talk about? Well, no, this has been a, a great conversation, um, and I appreciate you inviting me to to share some of the things that we're doing here at UVA and love hearing what's going on at Hopkins, and I've loved listening to the other guests that you've had on as well. Oh, thank you, Troy. Well, that wraps up another session of the Faculty Factory podcast. Join us next time. That was Troy Buer from UVA. Thanks, Troy. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.